Turn, if you would, to the 8th chapter of the book of Mark. Last week we looked at a passage in Matthew where Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And then he asked uh, the disciples directly, who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter gave his good answer, and we talked about that for a while. Well, in Mark, we are picking up the same story, just the next phase of it. Because in the Mark version, in verses 27 through 30 of chapter 8, we have the same question asked. It's kind of a little more condensed version. So we're going to pick up in verse 31 today. So remember the setting. Jesus has asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter has given the correct answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus has said, good answer, and we pick up today's lesson. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So, having finally cleared up so that everybody knows who he is. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. He begins to tell them what's going to happen. He tells them very plainly, it says. Remember, we've had all this teaching of Jesus in parables where he tells the people stories and some kind of get it and some kind of they just don't get it. And after last week's lesson where he worked out that he was the Christ, he told them, don't tell people this until later. And now to the disciples, he is explaining to them plainly, really for the first time, what is going to happen. I'm going to die. The religious officials are going to see to it that I'm killed. But I'm going to rise from the dead. Now... These people probably, the disciples, probably understood dying very clearly. Everybody understands dying. They didn't understand the resurrection part at all. So Peter takes Jesus to the side and rebukes him. Why in the world would he do that? The Messiah couldn't be arrested and killed. That's right. Somebody else had an answer? The humanity of it. The disciples, like most Jews of the time, had an image about what the Messiah was going to do. It involved wiping the Romans from the face of the earth. It involved rebuilding the temple. It involved reestablishing the Davidic kingdom and making Israel the center of the universe again. That was their vision. And here is Jesus talking about suffering, talking about hard times, talking about difficulties. And Peter drags him aside and says, "Uh uh-uh, you're going the wrong way, buddy. I mean, think of it this way. Let's say that I was a hotshot software guy, and I got 10 of you to invest in a company, and I went out and I made the best product out there. 
And then I have a board meeting, and I call the 10 of you in, and I sit down and tell you, you know, Microsoft and Google and all these other companies, they're going to kill our company. We're going to be dead. One of you would come up to me and go, you know, this isn't real good for morale. This isn't a real good business plan that you have, that you've started this company, and you're going to die. So Peter takes Jesus aside like the chairman of the board might take the CEO aside and say, no, you've got the wrong game plan. Let's fix it. Let's change it so that it works out the way we know that it ought to work out. It makes sense. He is rebuking Jesus because Jesus has the wrong plan in mind. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty strong thing to say to somebody. I'm not sure he's saying that Peter at that moment is Satan or that he is indwelled by Satan as much as he is saying you're following a satanic path by what you're saying. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And there we get to the root of Peter's problem, the root of the problem that the disciples had understanding what was going to happen, and the root of many of the problems that we have today. We think about things from the perspective of human beings, which is what we are, we think about things from the perspective of human beings instead of thinking about things from the perspective of God. They didn't understand the resurrection part. They didn't understand that Christ was going to die as a payment for our sins and that if our sins were going to be forgiven, he had to die. They didn't understand that. They were thinking like you and I and most every other human being that ever lived has thought. How do we get more power? How do we get more influence? How do we control things? How do we further our agenda? How do we do things our way? I mean, we see this in other places as the disciples are discussing amongst themselves um, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who gets to sit at the right hand of Christ when they get it to heaven? And Jesus says, this is the way the Pharisees think. This is the way human minds think. It is, I'm going to be elevated. I'm going to be raised to some point of, in, of influence in the community and in the world. I am going to be top dog. That's the way human beings think. And Jesus says, that is not the mind of, man, of God. That is, in fact, the mind of man. God had a plan. God had a plan. Jesus was following God's plan. He said repeatedly, I only do that which the Father tells me to do. That was Jesus' plan. Anything other than that is ultimately a satanic plan to usurp the power of God, to control and save mankind. So, this really isn't relevant to the lesson, but 
How do you think Peter felt after that? Hmm. Let's keep going. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Notice we've changed. He's been talking to his disciples. And now he says, okay, let the crowd in. You get the impression that wherever Jesus went, there was a crowd gathering. Sometimes they knew where he was. Sometimes they didn't know where he was. Sometimes they just had a vague idea of where he was. But there was always a crowd around somewhere. Why? They had heard about his teaching. They had heard about his healing. They had heard about his feeding the people. And that's always a good thing. And they wanted to be part of it. So he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Pretty simple passage. If you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciples, here's what you have to do. You have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross, and you have to follow me. Now, the disciples are sitting there going, okay, let's start at the end of the list, following him. We're doing that. Okay, we've got that down. No problem. Now, we can have a discussion about the fact that since Jesus just rebuked Peter, whether he was spiritually following him or just physically following him because he still didn't have in mind the things that Christ had in mind. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt for right now. They were following Jesus. But this is an invitation to the rest of the crowd. If you want to come, follow me. Unfortunately, there's two clauses before that one. Number one, deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? This should be easy. Not to seek your own. Put yourself last. That's denying yourself? No. That's not denying yourself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll buy that one. <laughs> we, we had it upside down here for a while. It's not about you. Taking your personal interest out of the equation. Okay, let's have a show of hands. How many do that? No, let's not have a show of hands. <laughs> God's will be done. Thy will be done. Years, years ago, I had a book discussion group, and we read a book by uh, C.S. Lewis called uh, God in the Dock, which is a collection of essays of his. And um, in one of the essays, there was a discussion about denying yourself and the necessity of doing so. And in the group, the book group that I had at the time, there was my uh, coworker who was a devout atheist. And he came to me and he said, Why in the world... Would you deny yourself anything that doesn't harm you, that is legal, that, that doesn't I mean, why would you do that? And in fact, if you read some of the contemporary uh, hardcore atheist apologists, what would you call them? Um, they talk about 
what kind of moral code tells you to deny yourself something that, once again, doesn't harm you, that doesn't, I mean, why would you do that? It just doesn't make any sense. And you know what? Most Americans believe that today. Why would you deny yourself something? Now, we all think that we deny ourselves all kinds of things. You know, we deny ourselves those things that we can't afford. Okay? Um, I, I, I can't buy my wife a 50-carat diamond, therefore I deny myself that. Okay? Well, no, I just can't do it. That's not self-denial. I'm denying myself, or we deny ourselves something we don't really want in the first place. You know, like the kid who says he's going to give up broccoli for Lent. Well, more power to him, but it really, you know. So we say, you know, yeah, I could be CEO of the company, but I'm going to deny myself that. The reality is I don't, I don't want to do the work, the effort. I, it's not going to happen. That's not a denial. Or we as believers sometimes think about uh, denial as denying ourselves certain sins. You know, yeah, I could go do the wretched thing, but I'll deny we're supposed to not be sinning, okay? Is there any question about that? If there's something in your life that is sin, you're not supposed to be doing it. I mean, that's the end of the story. Christ is talking here about things that are within your power to obtain that may or may not be good or bad or indifferent in and of themselves, but you deny them for higher purposes. Okay? Let's say that I have a hundred bucks in my pocket. I don't. I've got too many kids to have a hundred bucks in my pocket. But let's say that I have a hundred bucks in my pocket. I can go take my wife to a really nice restaurant and have a really nice dinner. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing immoral with that. That's a good thing to do. I ought to do that occasionally. I took my wife out to dinner last night, but it wasn't 100 bucks, okay? Or I could take that money and I could use it to further the kingdom of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking my wife to dinner. Nothing, 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 nothing. Don't come up afterwards and say, you ought to do that. There's nothing wrong with it. But as I develop the mind of God and I start looking at kingdom needs, kingdom acts where I am working to further the kingdom of God, there are things that I could have done that I will not do in order to further the kingdom of God. I will, in fact, say no to these things. Now, as 21st century Americans, that's hard for us to do. We believe we have a right to anything that our heart desires that is within our budget and a little bit more. They're called credit cards. We have the right to do that. And if I don't get that right, somehow it 
uh, squishes my self-esteem, my good feelings, my warm fuzzies about myself, and I become a bad person, and we wouldn't want that. Therefore, what it means is we are so saturated in the thinking of this world that the opposite of it is just unimaginable to us. To deny ourselves a good for a higher good requires that we have the mind of Christ rather than the mind of our neighbors and other human beings. We don't think that way. So why is Christ telling his disciples, you have to deny yourself? Well, these disciples, for the most part, weren't the up-and-coming people in society, okay? We had a bunch of fishermen. We had a tax collector who was doing okay. You know, we had a guy that was out killing people, the zealot. Uh, We had a ragtag group of people here. But they had a life, you know, being a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. It is a life. And he's telling them to turn their backs on that. Is there anything wrong with being a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee? No, it's a good job. It pays for the bills. It takes care of the family. He's telling them to turn their back on that and go to their death. Ultimately, he's telling them to go to their death. Yes, Jerry. What does that say? What does it say? And empty yourself. And therefore, if we humble ourselves and deny ourselves, then we will be exalted. Then we will receive the rewards of human beings. No. Of God. The disciples sitting here listening to this talk are about to deny themselves everything for the kingdom of God. They're all going to die. That's what they're doing right here. They are denying a life that was reasonably good, reasonably moral. There wasn't anything wrong with it. But they are denying themselves that for a higher good. So, I won't even ask the question. He must deny himself and take up his cross. If you were in this crowd, if you were sitting there with this crowd, with the disciples at this point in time, that would be a very, very strange statement. We're sitting here 2,000 years later, looking back at the cross, knowing what the cross meant, and we go, oh, I know what that means. Now, we really don't. I'll get to that in just a second. But they're looking at it as a guy saying, if you want to come, follow me, deny yourself, take up your electric chair, and come with me. Take up your guillotine, 
take up your hangman's noose, take up your instrument of death, whatever it might be, and come and follow me. You see, we see the cross as a mark of triumph, where Christ conquered death, where he conquered sin, and he paid the penalty of our sins. And that's true. But it's also an instrument of death. And in actual fact, at the time, it was a very cruel instrument of death. The Roman soldiers were not interested in cruel and unusual as a limiting factor on how they executed people. They wanted cruel and unusual. They wanted to make a statement when they killed someone. Even a guillotine, if you think about it, is really, really quick and really effective. A cross is not quick. It is not effective. It isn't meant to be. And he's telling them, take up your cross. Take up the instrument of your death. Be willing to give your life and come and follow me. <laughs> that they were going to die? Oh, no. No. I, I think that his question was, did they know that that was the decision they were making? I said, no. To me, they were still thinking kingdom of God, riding into Jerusalem, big white horses, slaughtering Romans, da-da-da. I mean, that's what I still think. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's beginning to dawn on them that something else is afoot. But back to the crowd. A moment ago, we talked about why the crowd came. They came because they liked his teaching. They liked his miracles. I mean, you got to admit, that'd be pretty cool, right? Even if it wasn't you being healed, it'd still be pretty cool to watch. Um, they liked getting fed. I mean, who doesn't like that, right? That's why they came. But then they come, and he tells them, pick up your instrument of death and come and follow me. All of a sudden, that fancy teaching, the nice stories, those cute little miracles and a little bread and fish. It's not quite as interesting when the teacher is telling you to come and die. Is God calling all believers to be martyrs for the faith? No. The odds are most of you in here will die in your sleep. Okay? It's like the joke I told my kids this week. I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather. Not, not screaming and shouting like the passengers in his car. <laughs> Sorry. It's a joke. Most of us, most of us will not be called to be martyrs for the faith. Fortunately. But believe it or not, what he is calling us to is to be willing to be a martyr for the faith. He is calling the disciples and the crowd 
to a level of discipleship that is far beyond anything that they have comprehended at this point. And he's calling us. We today understand what that take up your cross meant to Christ. We know what it cost him. We know what it cost Peter and James and Andrew and fill in the blank with all the rest of the disciples. We know what it cost them. And the same Christ that called them calls us today. If you want to come along, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Yes, ma'am. Definitely. She said, do you mean by cross, genuine self-sacrifice and potentially ultimate self-sacrifice, if needs be? And that's actually a very good point because, you know, there's lots of people, lots of Christians who say, yeah, if I were called to die for my faith, I'd do it. No problem. Now, they wouldn't deny themselves anything the next day. They wouldn't sacrifice anything the next day. But if I were called to... Let's talk about that in just a moment. We'll get down to that. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. The great backwards exchange. If what you want is a good, nice, sweet, kind, fun life right now, more power to you you're going to lose your life. If your goal is this world, if your final vision of what you want to do is all wrapped up in this world, you're going to lose your life. But if you're willing to give it all away, then you're going to find it. right now. <laughs> Did y'all hear that? There was a sermon that her daughter was listening to and said, for an unbeliever right now is the closest you'll ever be to heaven. For the believer right now is the closest you'll ever be to hell. That's a nice comment. The whole message is about loyalty. Well, I'm not sure the whole message, but it's certainly in there, yes. That's true. Follow him because he's driving. That's good. Yes, ma'am. Hmm? 
there are martyrs today, okay? You, you can go to uh, Voice of the Martyrs website and or get their newsletter, and they will give you lists of them. Uh, we are blessed that we are living in a country that does not require that of us. If you wanted to start getting real pushy and start getting real introspective, you would start asking yourself, is it because we're not living lives that anybody cares about? That would be the question that would be raised. I've told you before the quote of the old English pastor who said that whenever Christ and the disciples came to town, there was either a a riot or a revival. He said, when I come to town, they serve tea. And you have to ask yourself, I, don't, I do not claim to know the answer, but you have to ask yourself, is it because our lives do not reflect the life of Christ that we are to able to live so peacefully in the surrounding world? I don't know. God has blessed us. God has blessed us with a country that was formed on Christian principles. We can get into a long discussion about that, and we're not going to, but there are countries today, Muslim countries, etc., where a profession of Christ can bring about death. And so, yes, there are martyrs for the faith today. Um, you begin to wonder, I mean, how prevalent it ever was, okay? You can read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it will, you know, it'll curl your hair. That's a good comment. Uh, you know, I've started it four or five times, and... Once I, once I get to a certain level of number of dead people, it's okay. I did, I did. Golly. No, you didn't. We're not listening to you. Go ahead. I'm sure it does, but we haven't finished this comment back here. Did you have another comment? I, I wasn't there. I wasn't finished yet, was it? To die is live, right, which is what Paul tells us later. How many of us have that attitude? I mean, I'm not going to talk about you. I can talk about me. We... We don't even think in that mentality. That's the point. As 21st century Americans, we are bombarded 24 hours a day with advertising that says, you deserve it all. And the only limiting factor is how much money we have, how much we can put on our credit cards, or some other thing. Because we are so engrossed with the thinking of this world. We're like Peter. We're not thinking the things of Christ, the things of God. We are thinking like other 21st century Americans. 
That's not denying it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I said earlier. Go ahead. If you're Paul, if you're Peter, if you're the disciples, it's easier to die for Christ. Peter, I mean, Paul says, I don't care if I die or not. Big deal. You know, obviously he doesn't like getting beat up regularly. But, you know, we can sit here and talk about that as an intellectual discussion. When push comes to shove, we hang on to life with the tenacity that uh, it would be hard to say what we would do in that situation. Yes. Yes. We ignore them. <laughs> we don't want to be uncomfortable. Was it John Huss? They used to put his hand over the candle and just set it there in the flame and said, would I be willing to, burn, to die for the faith? Because that's how they were killing him at the time. They were burning them. <coughs> yes. That's very good. But we need to make sure that we understand that these two are connected. By, by following the spiritual things, I have to be denying the earthly things. Right. And that, that's exactly right. We're not denying ourselves things just for the perverse pleasure of denying ourselves something. We're denying ourselves something so that we can do the spiritual things. That's very good. We're not just doing it as a show for anything. It's not like somebody's going to be impressed. We need to do it so that we have the resources, we have the time, we have the energy to develop the mind of Christ. (laughs) We don't fear death. We fear the way we go. There is truth to that. I think a lot of us fear death. Huh? A fast. Yes. We can have a long, long discussion about that. But we don't. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. It is interesting, though. I don't know your mother, okay? 
But if you ask your mother, is this a hard thing to do? She would have said no. But in order to do that, the love has to be more powerful than the demand for getting your own way. I mean, I remember talking to a guy years ago, and he made the comment, oh, I always you know, get the best piece of meat for myself. You know, instead, I get mine before I let the kids get theirs. And I'm sitting there going, my dad would never have done that. Not because he just wouldn't have done it. Anyway. I don't either. I mean, the, the question was, you know, dying may be the easy part. Uh, Teresa, a couple of years ago, went over to India on a mission trip sponsored by the church. And, you know, if you're a widow in a village, you were given money by the government to live off of. If you convert to Christianity, they stop giving you the money. So you don't, it's not like they're chopping off your head. It's, <sighs> I haven't gotten to the real lesson yet. Go ahead. Hold that thought. Go ahead. That's good. We're going to get to your comment because we we're about to get to the question. You know, this is a series on questions that Jesus asked. We're about to get to the question. Are you ready for it? What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, if the devil walked up to you, like he walked up to who, Faust, and said, I'll give you this if you give me that. I'll give you power, influence, money, sex. I'll give you all this. And when you die, I get your soul. Some people might say yes. Most of us would kind of go, no, I don't think so. Most of us, I think, would say. But the reality is the devil doesn't come in a red suit with horns and a tail and a pitchfork and walk up to us and say, here's the deal. Let's make a deal. He doesn't do that. He is the father of lies and he lives a life of deception 
And for humanity, it is a daily question of this or this, this or this, this or this. And sometimes you don't even know it's a question. You really don't. Once again, we have been so ingrained with a materialistic mentality that we just think it's natural that every physical need that I have should be taken care of. Once again, as long as it's not immoral and doesn't do permanent harm, blah, blah, blah. I mean, but why? A little more of this, a little more of that. The thing that I think is odd is this question is, what does it profit me if I gain the whole world and lose my soul? Most of us don't even work that good a deal. We're losing, if we're an unbeliever, our soul, and we're not even getting the whole world. We're more like exchanging our birthright for a bowl of oatmeal in the Bible. You can go find it. What do you say? Mm -hmm. No. What does it profit a man or woman (laughs) to gain everything that there is but in the process to lose that which is eternal, to lose that which is of most value. And most of us read that question and we think, surely it's a rhetorical question. Surely nobody would be that stupid to do that. But that's what we do every single day day of our lives we are continually trading one for the other Christ has come to give us life that's eternal life and life in the here and now it is a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness gentleness, faithfulness and self control I got every one of them That's what he wants to give us. But instead, we want something nebulous that the world promises we might get, maybe, if we sort of buy this next new thing that will last us until tomorrow's next new thing comes out. We don't even gain the world, and we're willing to lose our souls. What does it profit a man? What good is it? The dilemma that we have, excuse me, the dilemma that I have is we, we, I, are so ingrained in looking at a particular way, looking at things a particular way, that we haven't taught ourselves to think about things in eternal perspectives. Is there anything wrong with having a successful job? 
No, there's nothing, 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 nothing wrong with it. But what if it costs you your soul? There's nothing, nothing wrong with having nice things. But what if that nice thing is simply the stepping stone to the next nice thing, which is simply the stepping stone to the next nice thing, to the next that you have to have, that you covet, that you... I don't know what it is in your life or my life. I don't know. Well, actually, I do know what it is in mine. But I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Golly. (laughs) To rule the whole world. And then you're toast. (laughs) Go ahead. Greed. The Bible says it's more than greed. Let me tell you what it is. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus is talking about a particular place at a particular point in time, and he refers to it as an adulterous and sinful generation. Anybody want to argue with me that we today live in an adulterous and sinful generation? Why does he say adulterous and sinful? I mean, doesn't sinful just kind of cover the whole thing? What did Christ, no, what did God tell the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? I have a relationship with you, and you, Israel, are playing the harlot and are running after other gods, other idols, other things of infinite value. So you think. You are an adulterous generation because you have denied the covenant with your God, and you have run after other things. Have we, have we run after other things? What does it profit a man if he gains everything but loses his soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? If you are too ashamed of me to proclaim my name in this adulterous and sinful generation... I am going to be ashamed of you when I show up. Here is where we get the picture that the disciples sort of wanted to hear. They liked this image when when I show up in the Father's glory with the holy angels. There's the triumphant entry, not riding into Jerusalem on a mule. There is when God in all of his glory is going to come. Christ will return. But between then and then, we are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. Because the other option, the 
default answer, if we don't do that, the other answer is to lose our soul, to lose that which is of infinite value in order to gain that which only lasts for a moment. As Eliot once said, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot lose. No, who gives up that which he he loses in order to gain that which he cannot ever lose. That's what we're called to do. The disciples had a vision. They had a vision of what the Messiah was supposed to be. We have a vision of what the Christian life is supposed to be. It's somehow wrapped up in a collection of of, uh, the American dream of getting ahead and prosperity gospel, although we wouldn't say that, and life is supposed to be good because God is on our side and all of this stuff, and it's supposed to be easy and peaceful. We have this vision. And in the midst of that, Christ comes and bids us to die. But, but, he promises us eternity in exchange. That's quite a bargain. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that each of us, that each of us would deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you today, tomorrow, the next day, until you decide to take us home. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.